Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the in-season podcast with PLL Chaos head coach, Andy Towers. What's up, AT? How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Still above average. Above average. Well, an above average morning would be um, a pizza morning. Uh, yeah, that would. Actually, pizza in the afternoon would be above average. Pizza in the morning. Um, Questionable? Teeters on domination. Teeters on domination. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing well, man. Just uh, we got two feet of snow out here in Denver. So push the Denver Georgetown game back till today from last Saturday. So I'm fired up for that, although they're not allowing fans. So I'm trying to decide whether I'm just going to loom outside the fences or if I'm going to watch it on TV. What would you do? Would you loom or would you watch it on your? I would watch it on TV all day long. Two feet of mid-March white stuff. That is just draw the blinds and just start chewing on tinfoil. That's what that would make me do. It's kind of like your days up in Dartmouth when it oh. was snowing until late April, early May. I mean, it just as brutal as it could possibly be. But you know what they say about the weather up there? The only thing colder than the temperature are the people. <laughs> hey, tell me, tell me what a typical news story would be if you live in, you know, around Dartmouth and Vermont, whatever. Sure, it was the same news story every morning. You'd turn it on and they would, the first news story every morning was some meth head driving an ATV in the woods, speeding and hit a tree. I mean, every single day it was the same thing. It, all it did was make me realize that the meth heads don't watch the news because they kept driving into the trees. I mean, they're, it, it's, they're just lemmings. That's what they are. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, yeah, well, I know you miss those days because you love the outdoors. I'm an, I'm an, I'm actually an indoorsman, as you know, 
and being thrown into an environment where people are talking about hiking and swimming and running and sports. They're not hobbies. Okay. They're hobbies. Sports is a winner and a loser. I don't, I don't run around a hike. I, I like tall buildings and I like football on Sundays. Okay? I'm not going out for a ski with football games on. Okay. <laughs> I want, I want to anticipate the one o'clock. I want to slide into the four o'clock. And if things go perfectly, I'll make it to the end of the 8.15. But I'm not going to spend my days uh, doing endurance sports when there are uh, big four sports on TV. Well, thankfully, we got lacrosse on. So let's uh, turn the conversation towards that. Uh, okay. Very good indoor sport is to watch lacrosse. Yeah. Um, all right. So there were some great games. And I think uh, we got to start with the Carolina-Virginia game. Um Exciting game, a lot of scoring, uh, a little surprising. I thought that Carolina jumped on them like they did, but then Virginia fought back and made it a game. What, your, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, I thought that when we had spoken, I, I thought Carolina would win the game. You know, I did. And I think that Carolina would jump out to that drastic of a lead. Uh, I, I can't say that I, I thought that would have happened, but I – I looked at this game and thought that Carolina was a, you know, a two and a half point favorite. And, and for them to win by three, I think is about right. Uh, you know, I was obviously very impressed as I'm sure anybody that watched the game was with the Carolina goalie. I, I, Unbelievable. He's, he's been great. And I think the Virginia goalie is, is good. Uh, I don't think he's great. I don't think he's winning games for them. I think the Carolina goalie, is good enough where they could win the national championship with him. If they can get a consistent performance like that or close to like that. Uh, the biggest surprise to me was sort of the flip-flop and face-off success yeah. down the last three quarters of the game. I, I thought that Tucci and Tyre or whoever you say his name, I can never say his name. I thought those guys would, would beat LaSala uh, over the course of the game, seeing what they had done up until this point in the season and seeing Peter LaSala get beaten up in the dome. But I was su surprised to see that, that him coming back and doing as well as he did certainly fueled Virginia's reemergence into the game. And, you know, if it, if they played another quarter, Virginia could have won this game potentially. You, you don't know for sure. You know, Carolina gets a what unreleasable penalty and scores <laughs> Was it two man down goals during that three minute unreleasable stick penalty? Is that right? Um, Carolina scored. Well, yeah, man up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Virginia's man up really struggled, partly because the goaltending was incredible, and partly because maybe they were a little sloppy. But yeah, they gave up. I mean, they got one really lucky one where it was like one of those days, you know, where they were doubling and going after the to the guy on the sideline and he just chucked it into the middle and it bounced through to Brian Cameron and he buried it. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Uh, that, that, that's right. But still to be able to have that be so that, so Virginia didn't score and Carolina scored two goals during that three minute span. Correct. You're going to remember it was one or two. Yeah. I, that's, that is, that's a, that, that's a rough situation. You know, I wasn't surprised to see, Matt Moore in a battle that I think you can look at and you say he lost that battle when he 
went head to head with Bowman. He beat Bowman for a couple of goals, but let's face it. He's a, you know, an unbelievably good player. So he's going to get his, but I think overall, clearly Bowen won that uh, battle, in my opinion. I just think Carolina is a more complete team than Virginia. They're better in the goal than Virginia. They're better defensively than Virginia. While Virginia has a better midfield D group with Connors and Fox and those guys than Carolina does, I just think that Carolina seems to be more connected. Chris Gray was Chris Gray. He, he, he had some unbelievable plays, and he just seems to be the key piece that everybody else, whether it's the midfielders or whether it's the other attackmen, Cameron, Solomon, Kelly, whoever it may be, it seems like he's the guy that people got to get connected to, and it seems like they are. And they're playing with a real sense of passion, and they seem like they – uh, are feeling the momentum that they have. And I think they, along with Maryland, have separated themselves from everybody else. Now, you can look at Duke, and I know we'll talk about these teams, but I think Duke is, 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 is a half notch below those two other teams. And I just think that, and we'll talk about Maryland, I know when we talk about Maryland Rutgers, but to me, Carolina cemented themselves as the best team in the country or at least one in one A along with Maryland. Yeah, I agree. Um, they're playing phenomenally well. The goaltending, I, I agree with your statement. They could ride that goalie to a national championship. He plays like that. I mean, he got in the, the Virginia shooters' heads too, big time. And he made a few saves that, you know, are, are, we're, 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 you know, lucky to, to make, but that's what great goalies do. I mean, they get their body on stuff. I mean, there was a Peyton Cormier shot that was just a hammer that hit you know he got his ankle on it. sick save like ridiculous those types of saves are game changers. yeah i mean virginia virginia took some bad shots too they did they did i agree and i don't think that they're i would never consider virginia a disciplined shooting team right i think they take shots that have a tendency to be too far out i think that they're undisciplined in where they shoot to on the goal they allow their opponents' goalies, they let them off the hook with a lot of places where they shoot. And Carolina is not doing that this year. Carolina's done that in the past. That's they've they've taken a lot of bad shots. There's been times where, you know, I look at some of the shots that Perry's taken and he's got a bomb, he's got a bomb. But but there's been times over the last three, four years where I've thought, you know, Carolina's taken a bad shot here. They can get something better than a a 15 yard shot or a 14 yard sweeping shot. And I felt, I feel like they've excised those. They're not taking a lot of bad shots anymore. And that speaks to how connected they are on offense. And that speaks to their confidence in what Metsy's laying out for them as it relates to trying to generate the highest quality shot possible. And then when they actually do take the shot, they're disciplined shooters in that they're forcing the goalies to have to move in order to make saves. You know, very rarely does Carolina take a bad shot, but it seems like Virginia takes, you know, five, six bad shots a game. And those aren't bad shots. Those are turnovers. That's what those are. And uh, that's going to haunt you when you play a team that's as athletic as you are and as talented as you are. And certainly Carolina is all of those things. 
I think Chris Gray has made made the difference as it relates to that because he attacks from behind so much, but he yet he plays so well off the ball. He's 100%. remarkably well-rounded. You don't see very many players that are as well-rounded as that kid who scores like a couple off-the-ball goals every no. single game, and he's a, he's as good of a playmaker creator as there is. A hundred percent. You know, he he. That's exactly right. To me, that's what differentiates him from Sowers, Matt Moore, um, uh, Bernhardt. You know, I think that Bernhardt is the closest to playing off-ball the way that Chris Gray does, but nobody, nobody makes his teammates better through perpetual and timely off ball movement. Like Chris Gray does, you know, and, and, and what he does is he creates a lot of scoring opportunities for his teammates. And in turn, that ultimately makes him more dangerous off ball, whether it's in that particular game or over the course of evolving during the season, you start to scout Carolina, you start to worry about Solomon going three and three and Cameron going, you know, three and one and, 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 you know, the production out of the midfield, which I think is, doesn't get enough credit is arguably the top midfield group in the country. Maybe the Syracuse fans wouldn't agree with that, but I, I think they absolutely are right there. Um, you know, and that's a team that's really tough to scout. You know, if you want to take away Chris Gray, well, the other guys are going to make you pay. And if you want to, adjust and make sure the other guys don't hurt you and Chris Gray gets his, well, then he might just go off to the tune of 10 to 12 points. And that's something that I'm not sure any other attackman does as well as he does, not to mention what he does for you in the ride when the ball is on the ground on the offensive end. You know, is there, is there, a, is there an attackman out there that is a better ground ball guy than Chris Gray? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think you can argue all the important things. He's up there, whether yeah. it's, you know, and a lot of people think of off the ball as like clearing space for people and being good off the ball and, you know, getting into good spots. But this guy cuts. That's the amazing thing is that he times his cuts and they're looking for him. I mean, that the, the, the little f- feed from Nikki Solomon to Gray's cut, you know, and Nikki drives left and kind of rolls back towards X right handed and throws it back against the grain. I mean, that's a hard, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to cover that. And that's just, it's, it's kind of like classic attack play. I love it. Really, cool. It really is. And, and he's got the skill set where he handles everything with either hand. And he also has the craftiness and the slickness to go behind his back where, uh, you know, it increases his angle. Uh, he understands how to move in bursts and how to set up his burst with a coast and how to set up a jump cut with a back cut. And he just is so well-versed at, you know, when to cut. And I, and I, and it, and it certainly appears like he's able to do it and still stay and still allow Carolina to stay within scheme. You know, it's not like right. he's just cutting around and running around trying to get open all the time. It, it seems like they don't ever lose how connected they are within scheme, even though he's perpetually, making cuts that seem to be outside of the offense, but yet they're not. All right, let's, let's not talk about the Maryland Rutgers game. Um, really close game for a while. Maryland pulled away, kind of uh, exerted uh, a level of confidence and athleticism and pressure that were able to allow them to pull away. What were your thoughts on the game? I thought it would be a good game. I thought it would be a closer game. I, I, I thought Rutgers – 
would ultimately lose, but I thought it would be a, you know, two to three goal victory for Maryland. It was kind of going exactly how I thought it would go until the fourth quarter. You know, I was online texting with Frank Radin, who went to Maryland in the, uh, in the mid nineties and John Marcus, who was a, a goalie at Hopkins and uh, you know, sort of said, as we entered the fourth quarter, I thought that the game would slow down, that teams would start to start to choke the ball a little bit realizing that it was a one goal game that was going back and forth. What impresses me so much about Maryland is I can't get over how disciplined all of the offensive players are. Like they know exactly who they are offensively. Jerry Bernhardt goes six and one and gets his goals within the flow of the offense. If I have one criticism of Jared Bernhardt, it's that he's too unselfish, but that unselfish dynamic allows everybody to get involved in that offense and it makes them so dangerous it seems like in settled offensive sets they have the ability to make 25 passes and pass up 12 yarders and 10 yarders to ultimately get six and eight yarders and dunks it just really blows me away at how well coached they are and certainly that's a very positive reflection on Bobby Benson there, no we'll say there, and, and John Tillman. Uh, and it's a certainly a positive reflection on uh, Jared Bernhardt and, and the leaders on the offensive end. They just, they just wear you down offensively, and they're so patient. And, and for a guy like Jared Bernhardt, because you know he's sacrificing some points over the course of these games to stay within offense. And ultimately that maximizes their chances of winning the national championship. Um, but it, lo it looks like he's dominating games going like 80%. And then when you need a burst out of him, he gives you a speed that you haven't seen yet where you're like, Oh shit, I, I forgot that he's got, you know, that extra gear. He, he is absolutely the best athlete in the country. And I think he's, I think he's the best player in the country. As much as Chris Gray is probably the best attackman specifically, I think Jared Bernhardt is the best overall player when you factor in all elements and, uh, you know, the subtlety of, of him playing within their offensive scheme. So, so disciplined. Yeah. Talk about the face-off matchup. What did you see out of that? I – you know, I, I have a, I've had a ton of respect for that kid, Shockey. I think he's really, really good. And, you know, to me, before this rule switch, I had Shockey as a guy that was just outside of the TD Ireland, uh, Gallagher, uh, Arcieri group. I had him, you know, sort of in that next tier with, with Leonard from Notre Dame. And, you know, I, I think that while the Rutgers did, good, did a good job of competing with them, I just feel like Maryland's wings did such a good job in this game. But I got to say, I thought Rutgers guys did a good job of competing for everything. And there were a lot of face-offs where it seemed like Shockey controlled the first move and Rutgers wings were able to uh, get the ball back and get it on the ground. And so I'm not sure that the adequately represent the, the war that went on between the lines. And I think when the people 
made the face-off rule changes, they wanted to see a three-on-three battle more than they wanted to see one Fogo dominating the other Fogo. And this game, to me, uh, really exemplified, I think, what the committee was looking for when they made that respective rule change. Real quick, why do you believe that that rule change in and of itself will actually make that happen? Or do you think you could dominate with the traditional face-off grip as opposed to the motorcycle grip? Because it seems like there's been dominating face-offs over the years anyway, but do you feel like it's a little harder to dominate when you can't uh, one knee down motorcycle grip? Well, I, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, you're going to see guys that dominate if their hand speed's superior, right? The guys that dominate face-offs are the guys that have front end of the whistle hand speed and sound technique, right? That, that's what it comes down to. And I could be uh, generic in my technique, but if I'm faster off the whistle than you are, I'm going to dominate you. Uh, and that's just that simple. You could have four or five great moves and I could have one sort of generic move. But if I'm faster than you are, Jamie, I'm going to dominate you all game long. And that's one side of it. So I think that explains why some people are dominating the way that they are. The other side of it is I think that the rules now reward face-off guys that have four different moves. You you look at the best guys in the country, they've got their clamps, they've got their – straight rakes you've got your laser rakes i know some guys are using this shovel move uh you know and and you've got your chops your jumps right and so i think the fact that counters can now be considered dominant primary moves where before you kind of looked at just plungers or clamp based moves as the only truly dominating primary move, I think those two things together have explained why we're seeing what we're seeing. You know, I, I, I think you can go out and you can have a guy that's a dominant straight raker and have him go out and, and, and beat a dominant clamper, uh, you know, or beat a dominant jumper. And the longer that time goes on and, and, and these guys uh, develop four base moves, the more you're going to see different moves at the X. And I think that, uh, I think all in, I think it's much better for the sport. It's interesting though, because, because basically with the old rules, you could still face off the way you grew up facing off and traditional grip and have four different moves and be able to compete against the guy that has one move knee down motorcycle grip it's just that everybody went away from doing that so then all of a sudden you know the rules created a the 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 reinvention of of a technique that has always been effective yeah listen there's no question that you could be a traditional grip guy and you can go on and you can dominate i think what happened is uh you know schaumburg did such a great job of starting with the one knee down style and did such a great job of teaching that 
And then Greg Gremlin came in and, and, and added on to that. And, and those two guys were the primary instructors of that respective technique. And while I'm sure the difference between those two techniques, um, I'm sure there are subtle differences in the way that Greg teaches it and the way that Shami taught it. Um, you know, but people that would teach a traditional grip were no longer really out there going around the country running those face-off camps, running those clinics. And so what you saw was the emergence of one primary style of moto grip, one knee down, and both Shami and Greg Gremlin deserve the credit for all the success that, that those respective styles had, which was dominant. But, but because those were the guys that were teaching a similar style and a similar setup, slowly what happened is everybody was essentially doing the same thing. A whole, gener now, a whole generation of kids. Yeah, yeah. But de definitely. At least, you know, at least five, six, seven, eight years, however long it was. And so uh, now with these rules being changed back is the way I would phrase it. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity for kids to become great at a move other than what everybody else is doing. And that makes it more exciting from a viewer standpoint, and it makes it much more of a chess match, chess chess match, from a coaching and a player standpoint. So interesting. Um, so right now, who's the best face-off in the country? How would you rank the guys uh, like top three? Or have you not seen enough to know? You know, I I think that it's hard to not put Gallagher at the top, the Notre Dame guy, just based on his winning percentage. I checked it the other day. I think he's at like eighty four percent. But I know he's splitting with Charlie Leonard, and I know he hasn't been tested as, you know, uh, against the very, very best. I think you got to look at different groups. I would have said that I thought the Carolina guys are the best, but they struggled against LaSala. Uh, for a while, I thought LaSala was right there with the Carolina guys, and then he goes up to the dome and gets beaten up, right? A week after the, you know, the, the Q's guys beat up on LaSala, they go get beaten up by the UVM guy. So I, I'm not sure that you can say there is any blatantly best guy. If I had to say who the best guy is right now, I'd say it's Gallagher. But let's see what TD looks like with the new rules when he comes out. Stathakis, I know, has had a lot of success lately, but, but got rinsed against the Carolina game, uh, Carolina guys in the second week. And so I, I think it's too early to say that there's, you know, one best guy right now. If I had to take a group, if I had to take a group of, of anybody's, I'd take the Carolina guys. That's that's the that's the group I would take right now based on everything that I've seen. And TD is going to be back in the mix on Sunday. So the Denver group has got, they, they already had a good group and now they've got, you know, arguably the best group in the country also. Yeah, I mean, listen, if, if, if it was the old rules one year ago and you put Stathicus and TD out there, clearly that's the best group. TD, to me, TD and Gallagher are, one and one A before these rules switched. How are these rules going to affect those guys? I can't say I haven't seen TD go yet. If, if TD's going out there and winning 75%, that would shock me. I'd be surprised if he was able to have that level of success over the course of a season. You're going to dominate guys here and there. Um, you know, that's happening game to game. But in terms of just a total domination, the way that TD had done has done over his whole career, 
I just don't think you're going to see that same level of success over the course of a season. And so it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch him. Do you know if he's playing today or is he his first game scheduled to be Villanova? I'm not positive. I did read something uh, t- today that said his first game will be Villanova on Sunday. So uh, you can't always believe what you read, but that's what I read. Yeah. So, so yeah, we'll, it, we'll, we'll, we'll know more, I, I think, in the middle of April. You sort of go four weeks down the line, and when all these ACC teams have played each other and all the Big Ten teams have played each other, I think – I think we're going to be able to look back and, and we're going to look at the statistics and be able to see who the best guys are. I mean, there are guys that have dominated most of their games and then gotten and gotten beat. Yeah. Uh, I think the Carolina guys have lost once, you know, the Salah has lost once, I guess. Um, you know, when you, when you look at games, Staphicus has lost once Gallagher has not lost to anyone yet, but they've only played two games or one game, I think. And so I just don't think we have enough, a big enough sample size to, to say responsibly who the best guys are. But again, if I had to, to take a group right now, I'd take the Carolina guys. Got it. Well, big game today in Denver, 1230 PM mountain time, 230 Eastern uh, Georgetown at Denver. Uh, all, huge big East matchup. Um, obviously Carolina's, I mean, uh, Denver's played, some real tough games. This is the first really top 10 ranked opponent for Georgetown thoughts on this game. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm glad that it's played when it's played because I think Denver is starting to slide into its identity. And I think that this is going to be the first big test for them since the first weekend where they traveled to play Duke and Carolina. And they're playing a team that, everybody feels is among the best five teams in the country, so to speak, right? If I'm looking at the best teams, as we said before, I think Carolina and Maryland, uh, then I have Duke kind of by itself. And then I have Syracuse next. And I think right there in that next group is Georgetown and, and, and Rutgers and army and Virginia. Georgetown needs a game like this to, cement themselves in that top five group Georgetown doesn't win this game I still think I will have them in that sort of fourth group of of Army and and Rutgers and Virginia if Georgetown goes out and wins this game you got to look at them as a team that's right on par with at least Syracuse and potentially with Duke and Maryland and North Carolina. I'm concerned that Smith isn't playing for Georgetown. Is he out? Do you know for sure for this game? Um, I'm not sure, but I think so. So, you know, it's, it's disappointing that he's not healthy and good to go because certainly that end of the field is very important when you play against a Matt Brown coached offense. I, I think the face-offs are going to be a huge, uh, factor in this game and I know Staphicus has done really well but to be honest with you uh, I'm looking for Georgetown to come in and win that aspect of the game and if Georgetown is able to go out through Riley and the others and and win 60 percent of the draws plus and that's what I'm expecting them to do I think Denver is going to 
have a tough time stopping Georgetown. I expect Georgetown to win this game, even though it's out in Denver. Uh, but I think the path to them winning this game starts with controlling the X. I really do. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see um, this matchup, to see how Denver is developing offensively, to see how they how they make saves and, and play defense. And also for the way Georgetown responds. You know, they've been sharp. You know, they were 6-0 last year, hadn't really played anybody. Uh, this year, they're 4-0. And, you know, Villanova is, you know, they're 3-1 now. So it's like Villanova actually is solid. At, they at, are. At least. Um, so, but, but again, Georgetown has to prove themselves against a top-10 opponent. And it's going to be awesome for them to be able to do that. They do. Uh, and this is a great opportunity for them. I, 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 I'm looking for, for James Riley to have success with the straight rake against Apicus. Um, and, and if they can get transition off the draw, you certainly know this offensive team can be really, really dangerous. But I think they would be foolish to sacrifice possessions, hunting transition goals, uh, because I don't think that Denver is going to be able to manage Georgetown in a half field environment. I think that that really sets up well for Georgetown. Um, you know, they got good balance, as you know, you know, you've, you've seen them play more than I have, but I certainly know that they, uh, that they're loaded on the offensive end. And so I do think that that face-off success is going to be critical. Yeah. Fired up to check it out. So, all right. Um, let's talk last, last game. I want to get your opinion on is, was just the, the Hopkins over Penn state, um, 13, six was a little more on one side than I thought it would be. Is that what you expected? No, that's not what I expected. I, I thought it would be a close game, and it was not a close game. I mean, Hopkins absolutely blew their doors off. I think they were down two zip, and then all of a sudden it was like 10-2 or whatever it was. You know, we both talked about the best days for Hopkins were clearly ahead of them, given the coaching change, given the limitations that the university put on their team in terms of being able to be together, whether that was practices or meetings or small group work. And they did not look organized during their loss against Ohio State during the first week. And they came back and they played better uh, in the, the next few games. And I thought that we would see Hopkins' best performance against Penn State. But I didn't think that they would beat them the way that they beat them. You know, I didn't think that Hopkins would win the faceoffs. I thought Arcieri would win the faceoffs. Yeah. And he got rinsed. I, I thought that Hopkins defense would be able to do a pretty good job against Penn State because I think Penn State is still figuring out who they are without Grant Amen on the field. But I didn't think that they would be in that position. And now when you think about um, Hopkins winning the faceoffs, I love the moves that the Hopkins, Pete Milliman and, and those guys have made, particularly, I don't know whether it's John Grant Jr. that's making the decision or whether it's Pete, but put Steve Simone down below, put Cole Williams up top. Uh, it allows Joey Epstein to become a little bit more of, a, of a, a shooter on the right wing. It just looks like they have so much more balance. I'm still not blown away by the athleticism of the Hopkins midfielders. I still think they're going to need more balance there. 
But Cole Williams starts to check that box a little bit better for him. And I don't like, I didn't like him as an attackman, so to speak, but I love him as a redodge. I love him off the upgrade. I love him off of hitches. And Connor DeSimone is, is showing that you kind of have to, you kind of have to deal with him as a, as a dodge and score threat. You know, the, he came around, I believe twice around the left side and stuffed it once was on a short stick. And I think another time was on a long stick, although I could be imagining it, but he does a really good job of making defensemen pay if they're not fundamentally sound as they approach the goal line extended. You know, the amount of times that he came around left hand and the defender was on him with a cross check and his stick was downfield, not upfield. And he just, you know, took a sidearm shot right off the guy's hip. He just understands how to score on the goal line extended. And it makes it difficult because he's not like Michael Sowers or Mikey Powell, where he's, he's beating these guys 10, 12 yards from the goal. You know, these guys are in good position defensively coming across the goal line extended and he's scoring goals on them. And that just creates such a problem for defenses because you don't feel like you have to go until he scores. And then you're like, I guess we should have gone. Right. And, and, and so what do you do on that? I think number one, if you're going to defend anybody from behind the goal, you got to coach your guys up to get your sticks up field. We saw the same thing with, with Matt Moore beating uh, Bowman in the Virginia Carolina game down the stretch where Matt Moore took Bowman from X up the left side and then rolled him back and came back hard around the right side. And, and, and Bowman got back in the play with a cross check, but the head of his stick was, you know, was trailing behind Matt Moore and Matt Moore just rips it off the side and you know, goes near side high actually with the sidearm shot. It's like those shots are available all the time for these attackmen. And clearly Connor Simone understands that and has been victimizing defenders that, uh, that aren't getting their sticks in front as he comes across that goal line extended. But I'd like to see a little bit more balance from Hopkins midfield if they want to go and be a threat to uh, to beat Rutgers. And, and listen, they're going to get another opportunity at all the teams in the Big Ten, the fact that they're playing each other twice. I love that. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me to see Hopkins, uh, you know, potentially finish second in this league. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to see them beat Penn State again and see them beat Ohio State next time. They play Rutgers this weekend, I believe, and that's going to be a war. And the pressure really is on is on Rutgers coming into that game. And uh, I think Hopkins is, is, is feeling confident, especially after beating Penn State the way that they did. And it wouldn't surprise me if Hopkins has a really, really good month of April and we see them emerge as the, the second team in the Big Ten. But, but they're going to have their hands full this weekend because I think Rutgers is ahead of them at this point. Where's that game? So it, this game is at Hopkins. Uh, what's your prediction on, on that? Rutgers at Hopkins. Give me a score. Uh, I'm going to say I think uh, I think Rutgers wins. I'm going to say 14 to 12. But, I, but I'll also go on to say that I think Hopkins beats them the second time they play in April. All right. Love it. A.T., Always a pleasure talking lacrosse with you, getting your insights, fascinating stuff on the face-offs and all the analysis on the teams. Um, I do wish we had Ivy League matchups to talk about right now. It's the lacrosse, the matchups week to week are just not as fun 
without uh, without all those uh, Ivy League and out of out of uh, conference matchups. But in any case, this is what we got. Um, have an awesome rest of your week, and we'll uh, catch up soon. All right. Good luck to Georgetown today, and Colin. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, bro. See you.